The Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in wine and space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 13. Quatermass and the Pit. Hello everyone, and a very warm welcome to the latest edition of the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And today sees something I have been looking forward to. It's the third instalment of the Quatermass series, Quatermass and the Pit, the BBC adaptation from 1957. And the Blu-ray version, which was uh, released at the end of 2018. We're recording this on the 19th of January 2019 which is exactly 60 years after the transmission of episode 5. Now that is purely, that's far more by accident than design. It is. Um, uh, we've only just realised this as Simon's got his production notes out. I have done very scant research on this because I want to be, it's the first time I've seen this and having seen the message boards and the Facebook forums, people are in raptures about the Blu-ray edition. I've seen enough to check that the disc is working because it would be absolutely soul-destroying to, t- to have turned up here and have a disc that, di- that looked beautiful and didn't play. Um, so I've had a little look at the, the picture quality and it looks wonderful, but I haven't looked any more beyond that. Now, this is the first recording of our third... It is third, isn't it? Um, our third recording session, reco- yes. Third recording session. And after the... The misery of the second recording recording session. We're going to do some fun and cheerful stuff later on. Uh, this is the last of the original BBC 1950s Quatermass serials. After this, we'll do the ITV 1979 Quatermass conclusion. And then after that, we'll round off with a look at the three Hammer adaptations. For completeness. For completeness, because we're nothing if not OCD. And it is where we got the inspiration for our podcast title from, so it would seem very rude not to investigate this thoroughly. Absolutely. And as always, we have a gin review. We do, although I am feeling a little bit under the weather to start with. And uh, last night, Simon arrived and we had a nice bite to eat and heavily damaged the gin. So this morning, we're going to do the gin review at the end of this podcast rather than the beginning, while I have a pot of tea and just dry out a little bit. We're also including a new feature in the podcast that we're calling the Black Archive. The the podcast is all about archive TV, and it's a very sad fact that an awful lot of archive TV just doesn't exist anymore. So while we podcast about the things that we can see, we're also going to talk about things that we really wish we could see. And what we're going to talk about Um, on this first edition of it is the Doctor Who episodes we'd love to see back. There are 97 missing. You can't cop out by saying you'd like to see all 97 back because obviously we all would. Boring and it also wipes out a lot of future black archives. So my choice to come out of the archive this time is a bit of a, it's a tough one really because it's it's going to be a Hartnell. Why don't don't we do a Hartnell and a Trout? Well, for each of us. Do you want to have a, 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 Troughton, a, a Troughton for yours and I'll have a Hartnell? No, I'll do one of, one of each. We'll do one of each each. Because I'm, I'm pretty sure I know what your Hartnell is going to be. I think it's going to be Marco Polo. No, it's not this no. time. No. My Hartnell is actually going to be Tenth Planet 4 and my Troughton is going to be Power of the Daleks. Yeah. And see, Power of the Daleks is way, way top of my list. Hartnell, I'm torn between. 
The Smugglers, Ooh. which I would love to see. Yes. The, the surviving clips of it just look gorgeous. And it's got Ben and Polly, who are my absolute favourite TARDIS team. The other story that I would absolutely love to see, I think it's hugely underrated, is The Savages. Do you know, I've never been. I've only listened to The Savages once. And I've seen the tiny fragments of 8mm recording that exist. And I've seen a bit of one of the recons. It's never, never gripped me. See, I think I think it's a lovely story. I think the telly snaps make it look as though it was absolutely beautiful. There's quite a nice bit in the Savages. There's one line in particular. They're shooting against a wall or something, and uh, so we, we must make make holes in the wall, make mouths in the wall, so that they speak more light. Which That's is from a wet planet. No, oh, I can't be. Oh, oh no, I can't have said something positive about wet planet. Sorry. Ah. Anyway, the other really nice thing about Savages is nobody dies in it. I do remember reading that in one of the program guides. This is one of the few Doctor Who stories where nobody dies. There weren't very many. Edge of Destruction. Edge of Destruction, because there's no guest cast. Savages, Fury from the Deep. Nobody dies in those. Nope. You see them all recovered at the end. Fort of Doomsday, because Monarch doesn't die at the end, he just gets shrunk down. And all the rest are androids who are reanimable. Well, there you go. There's, there's one to ponder over, boys and girls. I think I think there's another one. My, my recollection is that there are four, but there's only one where everybody dies. Well, the, the bloodbath that is Androzani, there's only Perry survives there. Oh, and Timmin. There, yeah, one story from the classic era where every member of the guest cast dies. It's horror of Fangrock. <laughs> yeah, that... That's unremittingly grim. Uh, again, Tom Baker on, on fine form for that. Oh, it's marvellous. It's one of my favourites. Uh, thankfully, that does exist. So, um, in that case, what's your trail? Power of the Daleks. Oh, you're choosing it as well? Yeah, oh, yeah, we, We're definitely making sure that one's coming out. because yes, we, have, we have control over this. Obviously. We, obviously, you know, yes. so uh, you, can, you can thank us on the letters page, everybody. Purely so that we've got that two-story block, because... I still re- remain hopeful that somewhere out there, Tenth Planet Four is still there because I know it was at some point borrowed for Blue Pizza, which is why we've got the regeneration clip to start with, and after that it gets a bit muddy. Yeah, th- I think Paul Venetis has recently said that he believes that there's probably two or three episodes out in, um, in private collections. Well, he's, I've seen the interview; it's in the Radio Times. It makes it quite explicit that he knows where they are. Um, but the people that have them aren't the sort of people that you can force their hand. Yeah, um, and um, a bit like the surviving episode for A for Andromeda, the BBC knew exactly where that was and who had it for decades before it was finally returned to the mm. Whatever they are, it'll be nice when they finally turn yeah. up. And I mean, we can we know that one of them is Web of Fear three because we know that when Phil Morris found those stories, they were both complete, mm. and by the time. They, uh, the episodes got back to the BBC. Web of Fear three had done a done a bit of a work yeah, and he's he's actually got photographic evidence that yeah. uh, he's found that. So there's one that we, we can be sure is out there somewhere, and hopefully we'll come back at some point. Just a, a nice little bit of, of fluff wish list, uh, a new feature that we'll do. Yes, but in the meantime, it's on with the show. So episode, episode one, episode one, which is entitled "The Half Men." and was transmitted on the 22nd of December 1958 and features yet another actor playing the part of Bernard Quatermass. This time it's Andre Morel, which is a lot of people, uh, people's favourite Quatermass. 
Yeah, so um, again, that's another thing I've read. He is, he is for many people, the definitive Quatermass. So, uh, without further ado, Run VT, episode one. Okay, we just had episode one of Quatermass in the Pit, which I think I run is listed as 1957. It's 58, isn't it? Yeah, December 1958. 58. What first thing that hits you is the cleanup and just how amazing it is. I mean, this is this is beyond Doctor Who cleanup. That's how good it is. And how variable the picture quality is from scene to scene. Mm. The filmed inserts, which I can only assume they've found and cleaned up. Because uh, they can't look that, they can't possibly look that good from a print. Are oh, wonderful, and then it shifts visibly when it goes to, to the video, to the videotape yeah. in, in set. But compared to the previous ones that we saw, uh, so particularly Quatermass Experiment, mm. but Quatermass Two as well, um, really big step up in picture quality. Huge, yeah, and it's a, a tribute to whoever's been involved in this, is how good it looks yeah. for something that's sixty years old. On to the actual mechanics of the story. I'll let you uh, give the. the Pricey of the first episode, the actual story. Really two strands running through the uh, the first episode that come together at the end. First is Quatermass and what's happening in his rocket group. And he's he spends most of the episode in, uh, in the war office being told that it's now a military project. They're aiming to put weaponry on the moon that will detect and automatically fire whenever any nuclear strike is noted on earth basically as a sort of dead man switch and he gets a new second in command from the military of colonel breen while all this go goes on the other thing that's happening is that a canadian archaeologist um, by the name of rooney has got involved in a, a dig at knightsbridge in a place called hobbs lane the two um, different spellings i notice although you said that that's going to be a plot point later on it is yes um there's a a more modern street sign saying hobbs h-o-b-b-s and an older one that spells it h-o-b apostrophe s and that does become important later. and there's some building work going on and a skull is found and they then start an archaeological dig and they found fragments of four skeletons and these skeletons, they think between sort of three and five million years old, but were walking upright and so now saying this is mankind's earliest known ancestor preceding the, uh, the previously known one by two or three million years. And as they dig further down in, the, in their archaeological dig, they come across what is initially thought of as an unexploded bomb. Bomb squad are brought in and Rooney want them out of the way as quickly as possible. He goes and sees Quatermass, who's an old friend of his, and Quatermass and Breen turn up at the, the dig to give expert opinion on the, this rocket that they found. And Quatermass, at the end of the episode, points out that the skulls that were three, five million years old were on top of the rocket, with the inference being that mm. the rocket has been down there for that length of time. 
And that's where the episode stops. Well, that was one of the things I was going to pull the episode up on until Quatermass rocked up and sort of made that deduction that mm. um, how is a rocket? And nobody, nobody spots this until Quatermass turns up. How is any sort of bomb, rocket, whatever it is, end up at the same level of strata as five million year old skulls? Quatermass doesn't actually appear until a good ten minutes in, and then Andre Morel puts his in, in his appearance in quite a, an avuncular fashion, and immediately. You warm to this man more than the other two, and he, he he does burst onto the screen far more than the previous two Quasimass actors did. Yeah, and and you feel for the character because his baby, the British Rocket Group, is being taken away from him um, and being put to a use that he finds immoral. And he does his level best to argue with the, the powers that be about this and, and gets nowhere and, and gets... A, um, Somebody that he clearly doesn't get on with terribly well foisted on him. As, as a way of forcing the project down a militaristic route. I mean, that, that made me uh, snigger inwardly. That Quatermass is just aghast that British Rocket Group could now be turned into something with a military or any sort of weaponised use when all his previous rockets have done is kill people. Yeah. Albeit accidentally, but they've, uh, he, he's not got a good history with rockets and he's still head of British Rocket Crew. Yes, and uh, and actually the, uh, the discussion about uh, military rockets in space is one that's still going on. Yes, it is. It? Oh, nothing's changed at all. And actually there's a, uh, a little bit in there at the archaeological dig where there's some news, uh, there's a radio news report and there are, there are a few items like racial rioting and terrorist activity in Africa. And actually, you could be listening to a, a modern news report. Yeah, nothing's, nothing's um, changed. Just with slightly more RP English. Although, I noticed that bomb squad arrive, and there's a proper northern lad in there. Right, move out of the way. There's a bomb here. Hey, my, my magnet's not sticking to the bomb. It's not made of steel, this. Hecky thump. And everybody's now calling him Quatermass. They are not Quatermass. Not, not this Quatermass. New, new. And as you pointed out, the lady scientist is now... She is actually a scientist, not just Ed McTee, you know. Which is a return to the original, because it is. Judith Caroon in the original one mm. was Quatermass's assistant and was obviously being respected and valued and her opinions taken as an informed scientific mm. opinion. I'm pleased to uh, see there's neither hide nor hair of... Quatermass's daughter, though. She was so happy, it was terribly far back. And basically all she did was answer the phone. She did, yeah. Um, slight aside, <laughs> because I've just discovered a new podcast, and it's been going, going for a year, and it's marvellous, and it's Paul Cornell's discussion of the Hammer films. And the first one that they, they do is uh, the Hammer version of the Quatermass experiment. Mm. And I hadn't realised that was the first Hammer film that was made. Really? Yes. You don't associate right. Um, I've no idea. Oh, the, no, the first Hammer horror film that was made. They, they'd made um, sort of film versions of things like the Grove Family beforehand. They'd, I think there'd been five or six, a handful of films before mm. beforehand. But Quatermass Experiment was where they found found their their horror and they found their their stride. And what Paul's co-host makes the point of saying, um, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the lady's name, but she makes a, a very good point in that in the TV series, Judith Caroon is a very positive character. She's one of the lead scientists when they're talking about uh, the, the wives going off to, uh, having gone off to wave their husbands off in, in Australia. She was the one that didn't go because she had so much work to do mm. with the, the rocket group in in England. Then gets to the point where she um, helps her husband to, to escape. 
kind of because she's not allowed to see him while they're working out what, what's happened to him and they and she's doing it for for the best of motives when it comes to the film version all of the scientist bit of it all of the intellect and respect that she has goes out of the window and she just becomes dolly and to the kidnapping her her husband just because she thinks it's a sensible thing to do rather than having clear well thought out logic behind it mm. like there was in the the Great Mass Experiment. Um, his podcast called The Hammer House of Podcast. It's really well worth listening to. Um, as I say, the first one is The, the Great Mass Experiment. Uh, they've also done Great Mass 2. The whole, th- the whole thing, if you like classic Hammer horror films, it's really well worth listening to. Check it out. Uh, before we move on to episode two of this one, a uh, quick shout out for Who Alumni. We've got Arthur Hewlett, who played Kimber in... Trial of a Time Lord, the Terror of the Vervoid section, and Mark Eden, uh, who plays a journalist in this, and uh, who is obviously Marco Polo. Second mention for Marco Polo today. Yeah, which would only have been four years later, five years later. Five years later, yeah. And we've also pointed out that... Yes, the the poor farmer's wife from Quatermass 2. makes a reappearance <laughs> as the nosy old Has now moved to London <laughs> and has ended up on top of the, um, the, bomb, the bomb in Quatermass in the Pit. Luck follows her around in the same way as it follows Quatermass. <laughs> anyway, on with the motley. Let's, uh, now that Quatermass has pointed out the blindingly obvious, let's see what happens in episode two. So which episode is called... two is The Ghosts, and it was transmitted on the 29th of December 1958. So, that was episode two of Quatermass in the Pit. Um, and the plot really is cracking on. Um, nothing at all to do with British Rocket Group. That's been pushed to one side. It's all about the, um, the thing that they found in Knightsbridge. Breen has been persuaded to lend his expertise, still assuming that it's a, uh, an unexploded bomb, and has had the, um, all the, the earth dug away from around it. In doing that, they found an opening in the side of it, and inside that opening, they found another skull, but this time far better preserved and pretty much fully intact. What they've realised is that the only way that this could have happened is that if the skull had been protected inside the machine for the uh, for the last five million years, they're clearing out the inside of this machine. They they find more bone fragments. They also find some traces of radiation and get it analysed and suggest that it was a, uh, a nuclear propulsion unit that is decayed over about five million years. They also find traces of decayed metal, iron and copper. And Quatermass is saying that this is the, the decayed remnants of the, the mechanism that, that controlled the, uh, the machine. At the same time, he's talked to the couple who lived in the house above the, um, where the, this thing's been found and finds out that 30 years previously, one of the houses in the street uh, was abandoned because of the sight of ghosts and nobody has been prepared to live there since and it's just been let uh, to fall to wreck and ruin. Go back to the dig and at the dig there's the military with Breen are still saying it's a, a modern bomb and all this five million year stuff is nonsense. They clear out the inside of the, um, the capsule and it's a big empty space mm. with a sealed area at the front. 
And when they when they wash all the earth away, they see that it's got symbols on it, which Rooney identifies as ancient black magic symbols. At the same time, one of the soldiers who's been sent in there to, to clean it out um, starts screaming and says that he's seen a horrible looking figure walk through the wall. And that's the point where the episode finishes. I have to say the plot is really cracked on it is I can't believe we're only two episodes in um, the the episodes themselves are just over half an hour apiece there's quite a lot going on if you compare it to say the first and even the second one really there's far more happened in these first two episodes than yeah. much of the entire previous two stories yeah it, it's much tighter in its pacing um, there's still a really nice little character touches there are the last, um, yeah when he goes to see the the couple who who've been evacuated but live next door to the uh, the abandoned house, they're there with a new landlady who's reading tea leaves. And when Quatermass is asking his questions, she's leaping on board and accusing him of being a cynic, and how he needs to believe in the world of the spirits. I notice again if we're going to go down the the modern route of you know politically correct and you know strong roles for women, those were two very strong female roles. Mr. Chilcott, despite getting a credit, hasn't said a single line yet. He's just, uh, he's been completely and utterly dominated by firstly his wife and then his wife and the landlady. Yeah, and actually when Quatermass goes and tries to talk to him initially, the wife just turns around and said, no, you talk to me. And drawing a veil over the the fact that earlier it had been said that he was senile. Mm. Um, She spends, I mean, every time that you see her on screen, she's protecting him and looking after him. And when Quatermass starts to, to talk to him, she leaps up, she's out of the chair, she's got a protective hand on yeah. his shoulder. Um, that's very sweet to see. It and is, and it's... Uh, but it's lovely uh, little touches like that. The Yeah, the uh, nosy old bat routine. Although she's remarkably reluctant to talk in any great detail about this. It's uh, my experience with ladies of that ilk is that they are they can't wait to gossip about uh, exciting stories from the past. She's... Unless it's something that's really affected. Really affected, yes. Yeah. You know, war stories and what have you. Even though it's only used once, the the haunted house, Quatermass, and a, a policeman go and have a look through the haunted house. And it's an absolutely beautiful set. It is. And quite a big set. I mean, the, there's um, the hallway and through into the back kitchen. And it's, and it's, it's big and it's detailed. Mm. And it, it's only used for, for one... Um, ten minute scene. scene. It's not, yeah, not even that. Five. It's anywhere near ten minutes. I wouldn't even thought it's five minutes scene. The sets in this are very good. Yeah. Now there's... Uh, um, there's nighttime OB work. There is. And it's... I mean, some of the... the certainly the pit is a set um, because the breath doesn't mist. Yeah. But it's a very good one. And it's obviously multi-leveled. Yeah. Because as they're digging away and exposing the, um, the capsule, then what was at their floor level is now about a, a story up and yeah. they're having to go up and down ladders and... But the, the outside stuff is great. The capsule thing looks very well made. Yes. Lots of detail on it, and it's clearly a solid prop. It's not some tatty plywood thing. Yeah. Um, um, I, I assume that, again, there's been a, a ramp up in budget. There must have um, been, yeah. That's... And, and there must be a, the design department having stepped in to do special effects. Well, the cardboard rocket from Quatermass 1... Mm-hmm. Uh, has been replaced with what looks like something that's made out of metal. Um, even though it's explicitly stated in the story it's not, it's some sort of ceramic, we think, so far. No, I'm enjoying this, and Andre Morel is brilliant. He's by far and away my favourite so far. 
Uh, Absolutely. And it's interesting, I know a lot of people have noticed on this, as the Quatermass stories go further and further on, they're dealing with things that are further and further back in time. So mm. uh, Quatermass experiment is something that's happening there and then. With Quatermass 2, it's something that started happening a few years previously. And now we're looking at something that happened five million years mm. ago. I think we've seen that Quatermass 4 is the dawn of time. One thing we, you did, boy, we both noticed watching this, uh, the quality jumps sharply in places and i can only assume that that's where uh the filmed inserts there must be bits missing um is that's probably worth researching during transmission all six episodes were recorded directly onto 35 millimeter black and white film each episode was transmitted some small amount of re-editing and post-production was often undertaken the episode's film recording in some cases this extended to completely refilming certain scenes from scratch and editing new takes of these scenes to produce an original broadcast take altogether. This additional work was carried out by the director and was intended to polish and tune away any details that had not been successfully recorded. It was this slightly revised set of mass recordings that were then sent to the BBC archive and still exist there today. Remains the closest record we have of the programme as originally transmitted. Roughly 95% accurate representation. However, it's not the only version to exist. Towards the end of 1959, worked on creation of another version, took all of the footage that had been archived from the original screening and re-edited it into two feature-length omnibus presentations. Um, they said it was a trimmed and tightened version of the original serial with certain small scenes removed. In order to present the best possible picture quality, the original camera negatives from the production's 1958 film shoot were cut directly into this new master. Fine-grained 35mm transmission print was then struck from the... Th- that edited negative that would retain the cinema quality resolution of the original camera negatives. As a result of this process, the picture quality of this edit is significantly higher than it ever was in the transmitted version of the programme, which had only used low-resolution telerecordings for its edit. Uh, new opening and closing sequences were created. A uh, level of attention to detail and effort preserving optimal picture quality was not standard BBC practice. The finished master consequently contains significantly more resolution than any television of the day would have been capable of displaying this remarkable foresight has been a major factor in making this Blu-ray release possible. He'd then work on a fourth version in the 1980s to take advantage of a home video market. It was prepared for a commercial release. The programme went back to the low-resolution six-part film recording masters and re-edited into a single 178-minute movie with an interval halfway through. It was video. It was edited on video instead of directly on film from transfers of the film. For the new Blu-ray release, an attempt has been made to use only the very best quality source materials to present the highest quality of picture, highest possible levels of picture quality in the fullest practical edit of the programme. The remastering process has involved the creation of all new high-definition scans of the original 5-grain 35mm film elements, yielding excellent levels of detail and dynamic range that surpass any presentation of this drama. These scans have been painstakingly cleaned, with dirt and scratches removed and film wobble stabilised. Additional picture area has also been uncovered. The opening title sequence have been rebuilt from the ground up using material from the 1959 compilation masters and a perfect digital facsimile of the original typeface. For those wishing to see what the unedited title sequences look like, they're on this... Disc is yeah. The audio was restored and remastered in 2004 by Mark Ayres, and it's the same audio mass used for this release. However, the reduced compression of the Blu-ray format means that the audio is now preserved with greater clarity than it ever been before possible. Right, so it doesn't explain why the picture quality suddenly really. jumps in the middle of the um, middle of a scene. It explains why some scenes are 
much higher quality than others. So they'll be the ones taken from the movie release. But yeah. It doesn't explain why the jump in the middle of the scene. Yeah, in the middle of the shot. It's uh, No, I'm a, a bit of a loss to that. It does say that there was a, a trimmed down version. Yeah, but... It, made, but you, you wouldn't, that, that you would wouldn't logically cut, assume... You cut in the middle of a... Of a, of a scene. And it actually was in the middle of a line of dialogue, wasn't it? I don't know whether it was in the middle of a line of dialogue. He was certainly walking through a door when it cut. And there's another one where it happened. There, there well. were a, a couple, though. There was one where he was in the middle of speaking and it just suddenly went. Yeah, that, that's a bit of a mystery. So uh, do write in. Anyway, we shall move swiftly on to uh, episode three, which is... Episode three is called Imps and Demons. It was transmitted on the 5th of January, 1959. And shall we? Let's go. Right. Well, we've just watched episode three of Quatermass in the Pit and things are developing. Massively, yes. From the inside of the, um, the capsule... They're trying to open up the sealed front compartment. They've had to get in a civilian operator with a, a, a specialised drill bit because the, uh, the material is so hard. While Breen is organising that, Quatermass and Rooney and Fuller Love, the um, journalist from the Quatermass experiment, are doing some investigating into the history of the site. They explained why... There are two different spellings of the name of the road, and the original is H-O-B apostrophe S, Hob being one of the ancient names for the devil. They find old library information dating back to the 14th century, saying that um, there were apparitions of imps and demons, and that in the, even in the 14th century it had long been known, known as, a, as a disturbed and troubled place. They also piece together that each time these disturbances happen um, there's something happening to the ground so tree felling or building work new tube extension digging a well so disturbances of the earth the attempt to open up the the front part of the capsule initially fails and the the drill bit makes no impression on the the material what does happen is that everybody who's there hears and, and is affected to a greater or lesser extent by some sort of weird noise and Breen in particular is um, is affected by it to the point where he can't really do anything. And they feel that this is probably due to some sort of weird acoustics from the, the shiny inside of the material. So they, they get their soldiers to, to get sandbags to baffle the inside. But as they're doing that, they notice that a hole has actually appeared in the material, not where the, the drill was happening and looks to have been more melted. And as they're, they're watching it, the drill, the, the hole works its way right through to the inner uh, capsule and there's an, an inrush of air. Quatermass and his group reappear at this not long after this. And just as the, the soldiers are aiming to use this hole as a, a levering point to unscrew the, um, the entrance to the, the front of the capsule. And right at the end of the episode, they do that to see inside the capsule and a, a, a whole load of webbing and suspended in the webbing three large insect-looking things. Which are beautifully built. Yeah, absolutely gorgeous model work. Um, and the very end of the episode, one of them shifts slightly in the, in the webbing and Quatermass just turns around and, and says, it's all right, they're dead. They've been dead a very long time. Mm. Considering, really, all that really happened in that episode was looking through some library books 
and trying to open a sealed door. It was really good stuff. Yeah. I particularly like the Foley work. The the sound effects for when they try drilling through the door, there's all sorts of acoustic effects go off, and they're quite unsettling. And there's no visual effects at all. It's just everybody goes a little bit mental as a result of the audio effects. It's not at this point. It's not been explained what they are. If it is explained later in the the serial, but even though the the sets are beautiful and this is streets ahead of the previous two stories in terms of A, production, and B, just general pacing and storytelling. There's still uh, not... I'd say streets ahead of pretty much anything in the first few years of Doctor Who, which was... Well, yes, to be quite honest. I mean, this is more... I know it was edited into a, a sort of a movie version, but this really feels more like watching a film than a drama serial that was on at the time. Yeah. But it's still got that kind of intensity of performance that you get with the, the transmitted as live. Yeah, but it's still reliant on dialogue and implication rather than actual visual effects, and it's still gripping stuff. Yeah, and they've moved away from the, the very theatrical um, speeches to camera. Yes, and the IP has been toned down considerably. But I, I suspect not by design, but it's just, it's not quite as, hell yeah, I'm glad that's been dialed down. Yeah, the female lead is given more to do yeah. in much the way that Judith Curran was mm. in, the, in the beginning. And they've gone away from the Paula's telephone answering service. Hello, Dolly Bird here. Which man would you like to speak to? We st- we're only three episodes in. It feels yeah. like much further. There's a it lot does. of story. And each episode feels like a lot longer than 30 minutes yeah. just because it's absolutely compelling. I was impressed enough with the first two. This is uh, easily my favourite of the three so far. Oh, you just wait. What's episode four? When was that transmitted and what's right. it called? Episode four, we'll crack, crack away on. It, it's The Enchanted and it was transmitted on the 12th of January 1959. From VT. <laughs> episode four. It's all starting to get a little bit... A little bit good, yes. Yeah. Um, episode three... Three finished with the discovery of the arthropoid things in the front of the capsule. And these start to decompose very quickly on exposure to the atmosphere. Quatermass says that they, the capsule being sealed, they could have been in there for any amount of time. And now exposure to, to Earth atmosphere is speeding up their decomposition. So Rooney and his team take those samples away. They get them preserved, get them looked at by the university. At the same time, Fuller Love has snuck in with Quatermass and Rooney, manages to take photos before he's kicked out by Breen, and these end up front page of the, the newspaper. Minister calls Quatermass and Breen into his office and gives them a rollicking for letting this happen, and Quatermass comes out with the theory that the aliens were bringing what we'd now call genetically modified primates to Earth to speed up evolution and produce an intelligent species and that this probably happened all over the earth and this is just an incident of where it went wrong and there was some sort of problem and the occupants of of that particular capsule died. Breen's counter-proposal is that this is a German propaganda device which the minister prefers the sound of and lifts any restriction on going into the site and says that there'll be a press report the next morning. Back at the site, the soldiers who are working there are all getting frostburn from exposure to the, the capsule. And as they clear away, Stratton, the civilian drill operator, is starting to clear, is the last one in the, uh, the area. Um, he's starting to clear his equipment out of the, uh, the capsule. 
and the the noises start up again at the same time Rooney's assistant Barbara turns up and sees things start to fly through the air so um bit bits of wood spanners that, that kind of thing and Stratton runs out with a, a, a weird sort of jiggling step and runs off into London ends up at a burger van and everything on the the van starts to smash itself apart since he's there so he runs off and the final scene is him collapsed in a churchyard and as the vicar comes out to to see how he's doing you see the earth underneath him starting to ripple heaven only knows what's going to happen next or and i'm looking forward to the explanation behind this one um, as you pointed out halfway through, the arthropods are uh, three-legged insect things, which are, it's guessed at that they're from Mars. The, the general structure of them suggests a low-gravity atmosphere, and Quatermass makes the... I don't know how to put it, but it postulates a theory that they, ha- they are the missing link and that they were conducting experiments all over Earth millions of years ago to genetically engineer apes to basically become human beings eventually and and prepare the planet ready for the Martians to come and live here. But as you've pointed out, it's the only one that's so far that's mentioned Mars and it's the only serial that isn't using Hulse's Mars as the theme tune. Which is probably just one of those little coincidence things. Interesting to note. Who alumni would best give a, a very brief mention to Bernard Spear, who's in this as a newspaper vendor. He was carrier bag man in Daleks 2150 AD as his starring role. And Noel Hewlett, who was the vicar at the very end, isn't a Who alumnus. I was trying to remember where I knew him from. It's from an Avengers episode. Ah, Um, I don't know. I think it's Mission Highly Improbable. And he was also in the the film Victim, which is a very, very good film with Dirk Bogart. Right. Yeah, so the the pace is continuing to ramp up, mm. isn't it? Um, I just can't quite believe how much of it there is. They don't really don't feel like half-hour half episodes. Not at all. There's a lot of story crammed into this. It's, it's way, way ahead of the other two serials. I'm loving this. Well, shall we crack on with episode, episode five? Episode five. Which is The Wild Hunt, and that was from 19th of January 1959, so exactly 60, 60 years, years ago to the today. Day. Ron VT. <laughs> Um, it's time for our gin review. And we are currently on Star of Bombay. Which is... It's kind of the posh Bombay Sapphire. It is. Um... I don't think it's that much of a step up from normal Bombay Sapphire. Not really, no. Don't get me wrong, it's nice. Bombay Sapphire is nice. We're mixing it again just with uh, normal full-fat fever tree. Um... I can't say I'm overly blown away, if I'm honest. It, it's all right. But it's, it's very nice. It doesn't really... And it, it does the job. It doesn't really mm. stand out that much. I think I'd be pushed to tell the difference between this and your normal yeah. Bombay Sapphire. But Bombay Sapphire is a lovely gin. It is. Um, I think this is I'll, a good solid four. I'll give it a three. A three burners for this one. Um, I think it could do with some botanicals dropping in, just to liven it up a little bit. The thing about Bombay Sapphire is it has been... Basically, the the, stand, the good standard for gin, the benchmark, yeah. for years. And now it's been usurped by God knows how many other gins that are... Yeah, there's been a massive explosion yeah. in the 
it's still it's still shaking off its pinnacle of gin accolade yeah. on Bay Sapphire. You know that you're going to get a decent drink out of it. It's not Gordon's or any you know run of the mill gin, mm. but unfortunately now it's just sort of very good as opposed to excellent. Yeah, because. Yeah, a few years ago you st- started getting Tanqueray and Hendrix mm, and yeah. all of those coming along. And then they're, they're slightly more unusual ones like Ophir. And mm, yeah, which is Karen's favourite. Uh, well, it was. Uh, that's been used my um, JJ Whitley's Violet Gin, which is currently my number one. Okay. Which um, we'll come on to later. You see, I think of that as a different thing to gin, because that's actually a gin liqueur. The JJ Whitley Violet? Yeah, I think so. I've never really studied it in depth. I just drink it yeah. in vast yeah. quantities. But that's one that you can really comfortably drink neat. Which you do. Which I do. Yes. Yes. Um, but I wouldn't drink um, Bombay Sapphire. Bombay Sapphire or anything neat. Well, well if you if you were twisted into <laughs> back into a corner. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's well, yeah. it's half past two in the afternoon. It's a nice refreshing gin. It is. It hit. It hits the spot. Doesn't do anything particularly adventurous once it hits it, but it it does its job. Well, it's gone down very nice with the gammon butties. It has. And it struck me, in the, as I was just preparing that little snack, that it's a, quite a cold winter's day today, and we've got the fire roaring away in the background, and we've just had roast gammon butties that have been, it's been cooking over the fire for the past couple of hours. Following on from discussions we've had about political correctness over the past 24 hours, this gammon is this... Have we discussed political correctness? We've done Jodie Whittaker's season... Did we actually mention political correctness? Oh, yes, a lot. I, I know we mentioned, I, I know I mentioned uh, cultural appropriation. Yes, I, I think I must have mentioned political correctness because I really hate it. Gammon is this new buzzword as a sort of insult to sort of middle aged men with an opinion. And it did strike me that middle aged men, or in fact white men of any age, are now the only group that it's Socially acceptable to just freely insult without any fear of reprisals. There's no other group that you can... You have to sort of skirt around and say, but... It's just not... They're the only ones that you can freely insult and not have to apologise for afterwards. I I think in the majority of places, transgender people are on that list as well. Really? Yes. You can just openly insult them? Yeah, and most places you'll get away with it. I don't think you could on telly. Oh, no, not on telly. I mean, I'm talking about um, on on television or just in general or on the internet or anywhere. It's perfectly acceptable to have a real good go at white men. There's this assumption that, you know, they've, they've had their time. You know, they've done it for God knows how many hundreds of years. It's your turn for a bit of bashing. We're a long way from Quasimass episode five here, but I just... Uh, it's funny what a gammon butty can trigger in the middle of the afternoon when you've got okay. gin waiting for you. So why gammon? Oh, because it's... I'm kind of amazed you've never heard this expression. Yeah, yeah it's um, ruddy, sort of gammon-esque... Porcine. Porcine. <laughs> yes, complexion that uh, that white men can develop when they're of a certain size. And uh, question time is a favourite for that. There's a lot of gammon in the audience asking questions. It's, again... But it's one of those horrible buzzwords that people have jumped on as a uh, as a term of abuse. Anyway, it's just my two penneth. It's not going to. It's certainly not going to detract from either the gin or Quatermass. Now, episode five. Yes. Which is this is the sixtieth the sixtieth anniversary episode of for once for a better one. So, without further ado, crack on.
Okay, episode five, and uh, just as gripping as the previous four instalments. Yes, absolutely. Um, the preceding episode finished with Slatten, the um, drill operator, collapsing in a churchyard. He he recovers, but he, he's still clearly shocked, and he describes the feeling of, of being one of the aliens from the, um, the front of the capsule uh, and running through the, the streets feeling that way and he, he was certainly running in a, a very odd and was, almost uh, praying mantis style yeah. with his hands yeah. they decide to uh, to try and use a bit of equipment that Rooney has been playing about with which will uh, pick up the electrical signals from the optical part of the brain and put them on a, a TV screen so basically you can see what what's going on in the in the brain's optical centers hoping to pick up these images the other thing that they've realized is that when the power is turned off the lighting in the capsule as Sladden did when he was trying to un- take his equipment away that's when these things start to kick off so they decide to to run this experiment where Quatermass goes into the the capsule to try and trigger these uh, these visions and it doesn't really work but while they're doing that Barbara is obviously reacting and agrees to to be the, uh, the experimental subject so they get a, a series of images and it's uh, it shows the um the aliens running and fighting and killing each other. Um, what Quatermass believes this is is a ritual purge of the uh, the hive in the same way that our termites would do. And he believes that uh, it's images projected from the hull of the spaceship of what Mars was like five million years previously. They show these images to Breen and the minister, and they, uh, the minister and Breen between them believe that it they're purely hallucinations. They don't think there's any danger and they want to allay some public fear. So they arrange a, a conference at the pit in front of the capsule for that evening where they uh, they have big high-tension t- supplies for the, uh, the TV cameras and all that's laid on. And as soon as they start putting that high-tension supply and turning the, the cameras on, and the camera's operated by none other than John Scott Martin, mm-hmm. Then there's a, a massive explosion from within the, within the capsule. Um, one of the technicians in in there is uh, is dead. The other is very clearly shocked. While the crowd are reacting to that, you look back into the capsule, and it seems to be bubbling, and there's some sort of reaction happening in there, and that's where the episode ends. There any, yeah, I'm just wondering because we've only got one episode to go. I've not seen this before. They haven't really explored the frostbite thing. Am I assuming that this gets addressed? Um, I can't remember. I always just assumed it was a... A reaction. Uh, well, a, a sort of pulling energy out of things. and that, That's why they, uh, the area in the pit was always cold. Mm. And so it's the cold that was giving frost. So it's actual frostbite. But mm. the, reason that it, the reason that the area is cold is because this pit is just acting as a, uh, a sponge for any energy that's around. What did you think? I, I'm loving it. I just uh, say it every episode, but I can't believe how much they're cramming in. As you've just pointed out, it's only... The yeah. end of episode four, uh, yeah. whatever his name, ran out of the pit and everything was kicking off. That's only one episode past. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I knew it's been a number of years since I've seen this. Um, and when I knew we were going to be doing this podcast, and particularly when I knew that the Blu-ray was going to be coming out, I deliberately didn't want to see it mm. and, exper- and wanted to experience it again. It's every bit as captivating as I remember from when I saw the Omnibus edition back in the early 90s I think I am loving this he is uh, he's, he's certainly 
my favourite quote of mass. I can't imagine John Mills is going to pip that. Brian Donnelly certainly won't. Although he's the only one that played Quatermass twice. He's the film Quatermass in both The Experiment and in Quatermass 2. And then Andrew Keir is Quatermass for the film version of Quatermass in the Pit. And he, he does a, a good performance. Brian Donnelly doesn't. Because Andrew Keir is actually he's Quatermass in the memoirs, yeah. the radio version, which is set between this and the Quatermass conclusion. Back to the shiny Blu-ray for episode six. Now, this is called... Hob. And it was transmitted on the 26th of January, 1959. So we've just finished episode six of Quatermass in the Pit. Very busy episode. So it starts off with the frothing effect inside the, uh, the capsule as power's being put into it. It starts to affect the people around it and uh, Breen kind of forces the, um, the assembled journalists to, uh, to stay by refusing to cancel the, the press conference, even though Quatermass and Fuller Love are, are very strongly urging them to leave. Uh, the conference goes ahead and as it starts happening, as it's going um, ahead, the capsule starts to glow inside and people become more and more affected. The crowd that's gathered run out of the the area of the pit and start rampaging around the the streets of London and the, the rampaging crowds get bigger and bigger and bigger. We come to realise that there are a few people who are immune to this effect. Uh, Fuller Love is and stays, stays behind to take photos, um, ultimately ending up being spotted by Breen and a few of the other affected people who are, who've stayed behind in the pit and gets a load of rocks thrown at him mm. and we never see him again. We assume he ends up being crushed to death. Rooney isn't affected and manages to find Quatermass and talks him out of his trance. Potter isn't affected. He's the, uh, the bomb disposal expert and he keeps Barbara safe and ultimately ends up having to knock her unconscious when she starts channeling this energy through. We hear from the Americans that this is becoming more widespread across London and there's a shot of an American plane describing the the lights going out and fires burning in London below and there's a a shot which I assume must be wartime footage of big chunks of a city burning which is very effective and must have been even more effective just what 25 years after the end of the war. So um, people carry on rampaging through the the streets um, Quatermass is now recovered and is able to say that he feels that he felt the urge to to kill people that weren't that were basically not we, um, <laughs> and the the rampaging crowds kill all the animals that they can find. There's a scene where they they kill a blind man, and anybody who isn't affected by the, uh, this mental possession, they have a way of no, some sort of way of telling, and they kill them as well. Potter almost gets killed when he he goes out to get some equipment. Potter and Quatermass and Rooney all meet in the house next to the pit where Potter has been knocking down the wall between so he can get into the the pit to see what's going on. They look in and they see that the capsule has completely melted and above it has formed a a glowing representation of one of the Martians. Quatermass is is really struggling to maintain control at this point. Rooney realises that the traditional enemies of the the devil, so uh, cold, cold iron and water may be useful to, to earth away the energy that has been generated from the uh, the hull of the capsule. 
So they rig up a great iron chain to the local water supply, put an iron grate on it, and plan is to throw that into the, the, the energy manifestation of the creature. So Quatermass goes to do this. In doing so, he finds Breen and the others who'd stayed in the pit to dried out to husks. And he's not able to, um, to go through with it. He, he ends up getting affected. So Rooney comes down, takes over that plan, gets hold of the iron grate, chucks it into the, um, into the creature. There's a massive explosion. Rooney is killed. The creature dissipates. Everybody goes back to normal. And then there's a, a big speech about how we need to learn to live in harmony in the, on mm. the, the planet. Or Quatermass's very final words are, if we don't control the Martians within us, then this will be their second dead planet. That was really good, wasn't it? It was. It was excellent. Yeah. It kept ramping up and ramping up. I wondered how they were actually going to get out of it in the end. Basically, earthed the monster. Yes. I quite like the incidental music. The the way the, the specially composed music for this, it really works well. Uh, certainly as a signing off. Special effects by Bernard Wilkie. By Bernard Wilkie, you know, another alumni. And, oh, and talk about who, who alumni. Didn't mention that Stratton is played by Richard Shaw, who was Commander Lobos in the Space Museum. And in Frontier in Space is one of the lunar prisoners. And one of the seers in Underworld. Also a measure, uh, mention in episode five for Edward Burnham, Jellico in Robot, the yeah. Mad Professor. I don't really have an awful lot more to say about Quasimass in the Pit. Um, there's an awful... It's, it's about three and a half hours long in total. It's a massive story. I mean, really, it shouldn't have taken three and a half hours to tell. But you're not but bored in the slightest. In any way it doesn't bored. slacken. And each episode feels really full yeah. without padding at all. And there are some really nice, really nice touches right the way through. One thing I particularly liked was when um, Quatermass, Rooney and Barbara, where they're deciding that they they need to go and make sure that Potter is all right. Um, And Quatermass gets up to go and Barbara says, I'm coming coming along as well. Rooney tries to do the whole, no, you need Mm. to stay here. And she just says, no, I don't, and storms out the door. (laughs) Um, And it ends up Rooney staying behind. And that was a really nice Yeah, it was, yeah, great. The one thing, again, another thing I didn't say about episode five, when we saw the, the the visual representation through Rooney's machine, I wasn't actually expecting to see it. I thought that that might be a special effect too far, and yet we do. With the um, the little maquettes of the Martians, they've actually made a, a hive purge sequence, and it works really quite well. Yeah, and and you see them you see them moving with sort of up, mm. articulated limbs, which I was quite impressed by. Because you see one crawling along the ground. You do. Yeah, I just can't fault this. I can't fault a single thing about it. I thought it was wonderful. Streets ahead of the previous two, which I enjoyed. Yeah. Thank, thank goodness it survives. Um, the restoration quality is <coughs> phenomenal. I would urge anybody to, to go out and buy this and watch it. BBC have done a really good job with this. Uh, it's, it's well worth seeing. If you're in any way interested in science fiction or television of this era, this is probably the best surviving example I've seen. Yes, um, we'll do 1984 at some point, um, which was another Neil and Cartier thing um, that is also superb. But that, that's an adaptation. This was an original, an original, and easily hold its own with uh, with drama from 20, 30 years later. Mm, comfortably. So a, a very sad, sad that uh, that was Andre Morel's only outing, but he died shortly before Quasimus Four. This seems to be a running theme here with actors who played Quatermass. Reginald Tate died before two. Uh, John Robinson and Andre Morel died before Quatermass' conclusion. 
yeah, John Robinson. Uh, I don't think it's a great loss. I don't think it was <laughs> as terrible as... <laughs> it's a little harsh. It is a little harsh, but... Um, um, I, I, I was going to say, I don't think there was ever any intention of asking him to come back. I don't mean in terms of as a human being. I mean uh, in terms of uh, as a Quatermass. He was, he was fine. It was, I don't think... Because he'd been... Wait, wait till you see Brian Donlevy, who's not fine. But he's not fine. Well, I've got John Mills to look forward to next time. I've got John time. Mills. Um, and then we're thinking about doing the, the films. The films. And at some point we will... Just for completeness, we must pass comment on the memoirs yeah. with Andrew Keir from 96, I think it was, that on radio. Before we sign off this podcast, we've got a letter here from one of our listeners that says... And it's not a letter, it's electronic. It is electronic, it, yes. It's Twitter. Welcome to the 21st century. Oh, no, um, I still write things with a quill pen onto freshly torn vellum sealed with wax. No, um, we we made an error during the Quatermass, in fact, a couple of errors during the Quatermass 2 podcast. Yeah, saying that we thought Fuller Love was played by the same actor in both inst- instances from Quatermass Experiment and Quatermass in the Pit. He isn't, although there are actors that appear in more than one of the Quatermass stories, and we talked about Hilda Barry, there's not, as far as we're aware, anybody who plays the same character twice. No, there isn't. Um, there, are, there aren't a huge number of characters that reappear. Fuller Love does. Just realise that the newspaper editor does as well. Yes. Um, but it's played by two different people. In fact, the only cast that actually reappear are playing completely different parts. Yeah, Hilda Barry. Um, the Von Smallhausen blokey from Quatermass 2 is one of the TV engineers. There aren't too many others. I can't think of any. But we also... What else did we slip up on? He wasn't keen on our take on RP. Yes. Uh, and sorry about that, but... We it, find RP hilarious. It, it was funny, we just went with it. Um, the one thing I must say about these podcasts is, um, as I've said before, Simon's knowledge of archive TV is far in excess of mine. I'm watching these, watching many of, of Simon's suggestions, throwing in a few of my own. We're doing it mainly for pleasure rather than a piece of research or a, as a... An entirely okay, yeah, academic. Yeah, it's yeah, not a it's, it's not a piece of work. It, this is we're recording these purely for enjoyment, and hopefully, we have a, a group of listeners a group of listeners out there who are enjoying the ride. So, and if it encourages you to search out some archive telly, that there is some brilliant stuff out there. There is some wonderful um, stuff, and we'll have suggestions as we go along. We will, and but for the moment, for today's suggestion is very definitely go out and buy. The BBC Blu-ray of Quatermass on the Pit. You'll love it. Yeah. It's fantastic. It will also encourage future... Um, restorations. Uh, future restorations and releases of this quality. Okay, we're just recording this as an addendum to our Quatermass in the Pit edition because we've done a little bit of reading around as to why the picture quality varies from place to place. And it's because in the 1950s, there were actually two editions of this made. There was mm-hmm. the, the original um, Quatermass and the Pit serial, which was uh, recorded as telesnaps. And then there was a, a feature length edition that was done later using higher quality negatives. They used 35mm negatives, which is, effect, which is um, theatrical quality. It is, yes. And that's why we have, and, and those film prints still exist. So because they're film, they're Blu-rayable. So that's why it, it jumps from incredibly good quality to a very good cleanup. 
there is nothing in that that's bad quality. It just it goes from very, very good to very good. Uh, we've had um, feedback from Charles Norton, who is one of the people who was instrumental in the Blu-ray release. So thank you very much for thank that. Thank you very much, Charles. It's nice for you to get back to us. Uh, and correct us, because we, we don't know these things, and that's part of the reason we're delving into the archives, is to better educate ourselves. But uh, very grateful for your feedback, and thank you for listening to the podcast. It's nice to know that uh, some of the people involved have actually heard what we've got to say, and it was all positive. Thanks. I was going to say, I hope, we hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. So yeah, but uh, we're this is the first of our uh, sort of George Lucas revisits to a podcast, but we, uh, we do like to set the record straight on these things. There's one or two others that we might add, add a little addenda to, but we will notify you on Twitter when that happens. So thanks again, everyone. See you later. Bye then. The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss, and the title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rushton, Lancashire, and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit our website at extonmossexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Facebook.